going to try that again. I don't think we're all awake yet this morning. Good morning. There we go. Yeah, I need a little bit of energy. And, you know, if, also if you, if you talk to me, say amen, then I think you get it and it will go a little faster. You know, <laughs> oh. So before we get started this morning, uh, two things. One, there's Bibles if you need them. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring it to you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, this is yours to keep. It's our gift to you. Um, and you might want it just because we're getting through some intense texts this morning. Two, um, something that kind of came up last minute is uh, Mike Cochran. Mike, would you stand up where you are and just wave your hand? Just, he sings. Just He's right there. Everybody look at him and stare at him because he loves that. Uh, Mike has access to a cabin. You could sit down. There you go. He has access to this cabin that, that can sleep a, a number of people. And he said, hey, we want to do a men's retreat. And the, the I love the idea. We're going to do it. Here's the hard part about it. You could only book 30 days in advance to do this, to do this thing. And so it's about four hours away. We've got a date set September 16th through 18th. It's, uh, there's going to, he has forms outside. It's on our website. If you're interested in that, we could only fit between 18 to 22 people, depending on where we're, uh, where we're headed there is depending on what cabin we get. And so we'll know that very soon. Uh, but uh, we have uh, chapel times. We have speakers. We have, our, well, speakers, uh, a few of people of us on staff are going to do this. So we're keeping it cheap, 60 bucks a person. And um, it'll be a Friday evening through a Sunday morning. And uh, so we'll even ha- we'll have church happening here. So church in two places. It'll be great. So we want to invite you to come to that. It is coming up quickly. So check your calendars. Write that date down. And Mike is going to be your go-to person if you would like to go to that. Well, as we get into this text this morning, I want to tell you just before we read it, this is a hard text located in a hard book. Most commentators will say this is the second hardest text in this book. And, and so I guess before we get going today, um, I want to say I love you. Can, can I get that back? Can you say I love you? Thank you. Thank you. So we all love each other here. And so, like, if I don't interpret this just the way that you interpret this, yeah, that's okay. You know, the, no, one, no one's going to, we don't need to fight over this. People have fought over interpretations of this book, like literally fought and, and broken fellowship. And it's ridiculous. It's insane. We don't need to do that. So we all love each other here. Thank you. I'm not that emotionally needy, by the way, where I need an entire congregation to say I love you. But I I just want to make a point. We all love each other here. And uh, we're going through some difficult texts. And it's over this issue of the millennium. And what does that all mean? Pre, post, ah, and all that stuff. And I'm going to spoil it. I'm not going to solve that for you today. I know. But if you're interested, and I'll mention this again, I am hijacking Pastor Paul's Sunday school class next week. Because in order to go over that thoroughly, you need about 30 to 45, I mean minorly thoroughly, overview. You need about 30 to 45 minutes of drawing stuff on a whiteboard and talking about the history of the beliefs and, and all this stuff. So if you're interested, next Sunday, 9.15, that's what, no, 9, yes, that's what time Sunday school starts. 9.15, uh, upstairs in the education building, come join us um, and I will go over all that. We'll have some handouts and, and all that. So before we get into this text today, 
one of the things I want to do is just remind us a little bit of where we've gone. Because now we're into chapter 20, and, and there's only 22 chapters. So it's just two more weeks left in the book of Revelation. And, and so it's been an amazing look at this book so far. We, I, I've heard from a lot of you. We've all learned a lot. Um, but one of the things I want to get at is when the, the chief view, the chief revelation in, in the book of Revelation is John's view of the throne room of God. And when John is in the throne room of God, God is sitting there and he's got the scroll in his right hand. And, and in his right hand, uh, the question is, who will open that scroll? It's sealed up with seven seals. Who is worthy to open that? And John even weeps. The text says that he weeps because no one was found worthy enough to open the scroll. And the scroll is, is God's plan for all of humanity. It's the new heaven and the new earth, which we're going to look at next week. By the way, don't miss next week. It's one of the most important texts in the book of Revelation. If you have plans, cancel them. This is more important. Um, and don't laugh. I'm serious. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, cancel your plans. Come next week. Um, I don't care if it's an anniversary birthday party. This is important. Uh, so Re- Revelation, uh, right there in chapter 5, that's what's happening. John weeps, but really there's one who is worthy, and that's the Lamb. And he could open the scroll, and, and, and he could open it up for all of humanity. And he's the one that is worthy to carry out God's plan as it is on heaven, on earth. He's the one. And he's the one that could bring in the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth. He's the one who could finally do away with evil. And so in this plan, as we've seen it unfold... As we've seen the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus in the book of Revelation, one of the things we see is there's this great community of people that are built. And that community of people is, is the community of the Lamb. The community that follows the Lamb and everywhere He goes and everything that He does. And then there's this other character, and the other character is, is the, the dragon. Or, and then he's got his two minions, the beasts, one from the sea and, and one from the earth. And and we know that in the book of Revelation, they're talking about these earthly kingdoms and that would seek to destroy the kingdom of the Lamb. Kingdoms that want all their own glory. And so we see these two kingdoms coming up. And today, where the text is pointing to is back to chapter 12 and 13. Chapter 12 and 13 was this story that was told. You might remember Leto the dragon, the, the old myth about the, the god Apollo that was taken and, and formed for chapters 12 and 13. And chapter 12 and 13 is when Satan, the accuser, fell from grace, fell from heaven, and tried to destroy Jesus as he was born, but he couldn't do it. And so he rose up these other kingdoms to try and destroy God's people because that was the thing that was nearest and dearest to Jesus. So, the, so we've seen all this conflict, we've seen all this poetry, all this really interesting imagery all through these last few chapters, all focused on judgment and, and, and letting Babylon go. Basically saying, God's kingdom of of goodness and light needs to come, but it can't come in the midst of evil and darkness. And and so we see this tension, and today is the day where finally, not just sin goes, but the consequences of sin goes as well. And I think the central, if you didn't get anything I just said, you'll get this. I think one of the central questions of Revelation is this. It's not, who are you? But it's to whom do you belong? That's the central question. Who are you formed by? Are you formed by the kingdom of Babylon over here that, that celebrates as rich and glory and they oppress people in the midst of it? Or are you formed more by the Lamb who, who's 
forgives and who loves and, and gives generously? Who are you more formed by? Who do you belong to? That's the question that Revelation asks all the way up to the very end. Whose are you? To whom do you belong? Where is your identity? I think one of the things that John gets powerfully is that what really moves us is our sense of identity in this world. Our sense of who we are and who we belong to. It's this great monster of culture that he's dealing with. So last week there was this great final battle. And it's interesting because there really wasn't a battle. It was Jesus showing up on a white horse and evil falling. Because that's all Jesus needs to do, is show up. And evil goes. So last week there was this giant, it's called the final battle, but there was really no battle. And Jesus' followers won because Jesus won. Because Jesus simply showed up. And what we have to understand before we read the first half of chapter 20 is that John, um, the author, when you remember those plagues, we're talking about like, the seven seals that were opened, the, the seven trumpet blasts, and, and the seven bold judgments. There was this interesting thing that happened. M- many of you, as we read chapter 20, you're going to say, wait a second, when is all of this? And in Revelation, you really can't ask that question, when, because it's all kind of happening at the same time. And, and, and so, um, when he described these plagues, he did one, two, three, four, and those were fast. He slowed down a little bit on 5 and 6, and sometimes there was entire chapter breaks before there was chapter 7, or before there was plague number 7. That's kind of what he's doing here. When you look at chapter 19 and the, the final doom and, and Babylon has com- finally fallen and the heavenly warrior defeats the beast, all that stuff, what we're looking at today is almost a zoomed-in picture. Last week was like a zoomed-out picture, And this week is like a zoomed-in picture, and it's going to take it a little bit slower until it's finally over. A little more detailed. And that's kind of what John does. It's sort of consistent with the way that he writes throughout the book of Revelation. So we can't look at what's about to happen, and this is really important because this is where people have theologically, in my opinion, messed up a little bit. We can't divorce chapter 20 from the rest of Revelation. It, It flows right along in there. And in fact, if you were to put it linearly uh, in time, it, it, it doesn't necessarily fit at the end. It kind of fits right along like the line of chapter 18, 19, all that stuff. But anyways, we're going to get there. But one of the things I wanted to point out today before we get into chapter 20 is this verse I'm going to throw up on the screen. Isaiah 24, 21 through 23. Let me read that and tell you why this is important. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be heralded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be dismayed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. This is sort of the outline of the text that we're going to read today. This is sort of what John had in the back of his mind. That there will come a day that the prophets foresaw thousands of years ago, that there will come a day when the evil in the heavens and the evil below will be gone. Well, the Lord will punish them. They'll bind them and, and throw them out. And so today, what we're getting at, John was trying to get at with his original readers. And this was not a new idea for them. So this wasn't like, wow, this is brand new. What are you, what are you trying to say? So for the original readers, they would have read this stuff in light of these texts. They would have read 
I, um, Revelation 20, by the way, there would not have been the number 20 there because that didn't come till centuries later, but um, the chapter marks. But in any, any case, they would have read chapter 20 in light of Isaiah, in light of Ezekiel, in light of all these other texts that support it, in light of the book of Daniel. And they would have understood a lot, I think, a lot better than we have to understand today. That's why we have to spend 27 weeks on one book, right? So let's get into this text. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And if any of you are confused, uh, you should have been in my office Monday and Tuesday. Those were confusing days. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He drew him into the abyss and locked and, and uh, sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the 1,000 years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, nor had they received the mark on their forehead or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. On the second death, the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. In the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them into battle. In number there, like the sand on the seashore, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he lo- who he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I don't know. I think that settles it. You guys ready to go home? Uh, so what I want to say to you today before we get into, and there's more to chapter 20. We're, we're breaking it in verse 10 just because there's so much. So what I want to say to you is that I, I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be. And this is, there's like a thousand ways to interpret this chapter. But I think what I've done here and, and what I hope I've done and what I try to do throughout this whole series is, is take and say, is it consistent with the whole of Scripture? Is it consistent with orthodoxy? Is it consistent with historical tradition? Is it consistent? Like that's the number one filter that I have to go through here. And, and so that's what I'm bringing you today. Because there's all these different views. And as a preacher, you can't say, well, let me stand up here for two hours and give you the eight different views on this chapter. You kind of have to pick one and go with it. And so what I've done is I've prayed through this, I've thought through this, and thought, okay, this is the most theologically sound according to all of Scripture and according to historical tradition and according to biblical criticism, form criticism, uh, all that stuff. And so that's what I have for you today. So... Feel free to disagree. Come to the Sunday school class next week and let me have it if you feel like it's wrong. So let's talk about this. So again, we see the dragon character pop back up. Remember I told you we have to look back to chapter 12 and 13. 
this dragon character. He, he had these two beasts do his bidding, the, uh, the, the kingdom of Rome, really. But he, he pops back up. So the question here is, should we be looking for a literal dragon, for a literal, the, the name Gog and Magog? Should we be looking for a literal 1,000 years? See, I think the mistake that people make when reading this book is that they, they look at everything and they go, okay, well, Jesus really isn't a lamb and he doesn't have seven horns and seven eyes, but that thousand years, that's real. That's, that's, in, that's a statistic. And what I've been telling you is that numbers in the book of Revelation are symbols and not statistics. And so when we look at this, it's really, we, we want to, we want to read this and go, thousand years, when's that going to be? Break out your calendars. What, when's Jesus coming back? And there's been a lot of people, there's been entire religions started by people saying, Jesus is coming back on this day, and so let's just wait for it. And because they've taken some of the numbers here and taken them literally. And so what I want to remind us is that, that there, there's not a literal dragon that we're going to be looking for. I don't think there's going to be a literal Gog and Magog that we're exactly looking for. I don't think there's a literal 1,000 years. Because just like Jesus is pictured as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, he doesn't really have seven horns and seven eyes. He's not really a lamb. He's Jesus. Numbers are symbols, not statistics. Are there really only 144,000 sealed? No. That's God's way of saying a huge number of people come to know Jesus and follow him and, and are marked by his life. Numbers are symbols, not statistics. Was the blood of Jesus really 1,600 stadia big? No. He, there's not enough blood in the human body to cover from head high to feet from, from all the way from the north to the south of Palestine. There's just not. Because numbers in Revelation are symbols and not statistics. So, we get kind of turned around and mixed up in our interpretation when we begin to call these things statistics. And in proper biblical interp, we can't change our method from one chapter to another. So we're going to keep moving here. So there are many views on this. One is called uh, premillennial. That's Jesus will return before the millennium or mid-millennium. There's amillennial, which means things will go pretty well until Jesus returns one day and and, and there's all these different views. And, you know, I'm trying to decide this week, do I, do I spend time, and I, I don't think I do spend time covering all those. I think I tell you the theological point that John is trying to make. And, and so, again, next week, Pastor Paul's class, I will go over these three in detail. And uh, Pastor Earl, do they have permission to play hooky from your class if they want? Is that? Yeah, yeah I suppose. Okay, so if you want to play hooky from Pastor Earl's class and come to that, I... He would be okay with it. He'll give you a hall pass, and that's fine. Um, But I'd rather show you the theological point, why this is important. Because it's difficult to build entire systems of theology when a point is only made in one spot of the Bible, in a few verses. But yet some folks do, and and I think that's dangerous theologically because it doesn't actually back up with the entire rest of the Bible when it's only in one place. So I think there's a theological point of the millennium. There's other characters here. There's the martyrs, those who have been beheaded. They're, they're in there. And, and all of a sudden, they reign with Jesus. And, and it happens right there in the text. And sometimes we miss it because that millennium thing shoots out at us so triumphantly. But the theological point of the millennium is this. And, and I think church history has, this, has me on here. 
that they got my back on this, is solely to demonstrate the triumph of the martyrs. That those whom the beast has put to death really live. So let me say that again. It is solely, the, the idea of the millennium is solely to, to, to showcase the triumph of the martyred church. The church that were put to death by Rome. The church that was put to death by, by these earlier people. And this is actually a promise that's made earlier in Revelation. This is a consistent message. Of the seven churches of Revelation, we went through the seven churches right in the very beginning of this series. Of the seven churches of Revelation, their promise ended right here. There was a promise that was made to all these seven churches. If you overcome, you get this. If you, if you succeed, this is what happens. Revelation 2.11. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's what's talked about here. Revelation 2.26. The one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And this is what we see happen here. That, that the martyrs are given authority over the nations. The church in Sardis, Revelation 3, 5. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I, never blot the, I will never blot them out, in the, that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. I love that because Jesus says he'll acknowledge, and in Revelation 12, it says the devil accuses before the Father. But Jesus will acknowledge us before the Father. Revelation 3, 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with my throne. Just as I was victorious, I'll sit with my father on his throne. So in other words, church, if you overcome, church, if, if you don't fall into the pit of Babylon, if you don't get seduced by, by her riches, if you're not seduced by her, her marketing power, if you're not seduced by that, then, then you get to sit with me. Because we're going to judge the king of this world, the, the, the God of this earth. And we're going to set you up as rulers over this earth. And I love how John talks about those who are beheaded. Now, in Rome, if, you were, if capital punishment was used on you and you were a Roman citizen, they were really nice. They'd behead you because it was fast and it was painless, according to the Romans. I mean, I wouldn't want to suffer that, but that... That's the privilege that they gave you if you were a Roman citizen. So what John is trying to say here is, it's not just people who are killed for the, their, their, um, their religion in heaven here and, and getting this job. It's those who consider themselves to have citizenship in heaven. He's using the idea beheaded to talk about your citizenship. Where do you have it? Where do we have our citizenship? Because they would only give that to Roman citizens. So, the question is, is your citizenship right now, is your citizenship in heaven with God? Or is it with Babylon? This is the question that John is trying to ask the church. Are you going to rule with me in heaven? Or will you tie your fate to Babylon? The ruler of the kingdom of the earth is gone. And now my people get that position. See, the entire point of the millennium is missed when we go too deeply into all the different pre, post, awe, and all that stuff because it's built an entire system based on what John, I think, is really trying to get at here. Is that 
those who in the church who have been defeated, those who have their identity tied to the Lamb, who, who have been cast out, those, those who have been parts of systems of injustice, will, will then come and, and be a part of making all things new. They'll be a part of making things right again. And again, I, I almost feel like we're glossing over this just for, for the sake of time. Um, but again, come next week, and we're going to talk about that. And Gog and Magog. There's another interesting point that's brought up, and this is like the millennium is only one other point in the Bible, uh, Ezekiel 38. And when you look at it, you have to say, okay, well, what's the point in Ezekiel 38 for John to even bring this up now? And the point was that these evil nations from around the world will come and gather. It wasn't a specific place necessarily. Uh, There's lots of debate about that, and so I don't want to get too deeply hung up on that point. There's lots of debate. In fact, a couple years ago, or last year, just last year, when, um, when um, mo- a lot of people interpreted this as Russia, when you said Gog and Magog. And so just last year, Russia was in Syria. And with the modern state of Israel, this has all been interpreted different ways. And so Russia was in Syria, and I heard some very serious theologians say, Gog and Magog are in, are in 40 miles away from the Israeli border. What do you think is going to happen? And then they pulled out, and then that kind of ruined, um, that kind of ruined <laughs> you know, the, their, their prophecy there. But my point here is it's, we can't necessarily look at this Gog and Magog language and point to it in particular country. We, we just don't know. We don't know. It's, it's probably symbolic because that's the way that John is using everything. And his point is this. After these thousand years are up and Satan gets released, this this weird catch and release thing, and we're going to talk about that because I know it's all kind of strange this morning. That God, uh, I'm sorry, that, that Satan will go out and gather these nations and, and they'll come and they'll kind of surround God, the city that God loves. And I love in the text it says the city who he loves. Because there was another city who he was very disappointed by, Babylon. And it says it will surround this city and then fire will engulf them. I think what John is trying to get at here is that nations, all the remnants of evil, God has to destroy all the evil for, for heaven and earth to come, for the new heaven and the new earth. God has to destroy it all. And so what he's going to do is he's going to go out and, and get all these little remnants and bring it back together so that it could be totally destroyed. And I think what Gog and Magog, those points there, is simply to say nations as far as from the east to the west. They're trying to point out a a large group of people. So in any case, that's extremely confusing. And I don't even know necessarily that I did great justice explaining all of it. But it, again, is uh, confusing. But in order for God's divine plan to to, to make this new heaven and earth come to fruition... All of evil has to be rooted out. And allowing this great coming of the new heaven and the new earth, which we'll see in the next chapter. It, it, it's kind of interesting. When you read chapters 12 through 19, they're kind of dark. There's a lot of judgment. And it's kind of like, ugh, you know, it's, it's hard to get into them. But then when you read chapter 21, it's like the hallelujah chorus. And, and it's like light and colors exploding. It, it's It's beautiful. So finally, Satan surrounds the city that God loves. And Gog and Magog with it. In other words, all these other evil countries with it. 
and then he destroys them in a pillar of fire, just like uh, Elijah destroyed the prophets of Baal. And again, finally, Satan is gone, and all evil with it. And, and, and this catch and release plan is sort of God's way of, of finally rooting out all evil. So let's keep reading. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. So after all this evil is destroyed, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from its presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead and, and that were... I'm sorry, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the next very encouraging uh, verse, right? <laughs> the next passage here. And, and it makes these two points, which I want to spend the rest of our time on, which I think are actually really, really important. And also, to give your mind a break, these are a lot easier points, by the way. <laughs> it gave me a break while writing this, this sermon. The point I want to make is right out of verse 12. And it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. So it's interesting there's this one great book, the book of life, but then there's all these other books opened up. And, and what are we think are, are, are in the books is clearly our deeds. It's what we've done with our life is written in the books because that's what it says. We'll be judged according to these books. And, and it's almost like our entire life is recorded and, and we stand before God and, and these books are open. And the question is, what have you done with your life? What have you done with your life? What are the deeds that you've done? And I love that there's two books. Praise God that there's two books. Because I don't know about you, but I think I would choose for my book not to be read before God. I think I'd rather be judged based on what Jesus has done rather than judged off of what I have done. So figuratively, of course, there's a bunch of books in heaven. And the question here intrinsically is what's in your photo album? Go print your Facebook feed and make it into a book. You know, what's there? What's in your life? What is going to show up before God in heaven? What, what do you have to show for yourself? And there's these two books. The books that, that outline what you've done, and there's the book that outlined what he has done. What book would you rather be judged by? I know for me, I go with book two. See, on the day of our final judgment, it says that God looks at our deeds. He looks at our deeds. There used to be this question in the church. I say used to be. It probably still is this question, but I haven't heard it much lately. Are we saved by faith or by works or by grace or by works and all this stuff? And the answer is yes, we are. By both. Because no reasonable person in, in, in the Bible can, it can separate belief and behavior. They're, they're interlocked. There, there's this worldview that Paul was debating when he was in Athens, is this ecumen, ah, not ecumen, uh, Epicurean philosophy. He's debating Epicurean philosophy, and Epicurean philosophy essentially said, you know, you could, 
your beliefs can be over here and your behavior can be over there. You could believe one thing and then act however you want because your, your whole life is separate. Your, your soul is separate and your body is separate. So, so go engage in the pleasures of life over here and do whatever you want in your deeds. But as long as your soul believes, you're fine. Well, that attitude has lived deeply in the minds of people. And so what John goes with is deeds. Why deeds? Because your deeds reflect what you really believe. Your deeds reflect who you really are. Your deeds, what we do reflects what we believe, and what we believe and what our deeds are show who our allegiance is to. So it says we're going to be judged by our deeds. But some of us believe one thing and then act totally different. Some of that Epicurean philosophy just lives in us. I want you to consider the following scenario. Let's say you wake up one morning and you're not feeling well. This happens to a lot of us. We wake up and go, I don't think I'm going to go to work today. I'm not feeling good. And then you start feeling a little sicker and sicker and sicker. And so you go, okay, I need to get a checkup. This isn't good. Friend says, I know I got the best doctor. He's one of the best doctors in the country. You need to go see him. You call miraculously and appointments available. So you go. This is a scenario I've invented. So an appointment's available. So you go and you get to the doctor's office and you, you say to the receptionist, I hear this is a great doctor. I, I, I hear this doctor's great. All my friends have told me. And the receptionist goes, oh yeah. Look at these awards on the wall. Number one in the country for how you're feeling sick. Number one in the country. If you do with this doctor, everybody who comes here gets cured. Every single person who does what the doctor says gets cured. This hands down. So you go to the doctor and, and he does the blood work and the full checkup and all this stuff on you and he goes... I know exactly what's wrong with you. And you're like, praise God. He knows exactly. I could be better. And he says, um, you don't get enough exercise. I want you to walk one mile a day. And then he says, I want you, you know, you're drinking too much sugar. I want you to cut sugar out. I don't care. Go to diet soda or something. You're just don't, no more sugar. Cut it out. And then I got these three vitamins. If you take these three vitamins and you do all these other things, you're going to be running marathons by next month. And this will take 30 days. So if you, if you do all this for 30 days and then you keep with, the, you keep with it, you're going to be fine. And you find out this doctor is the greatest doctor in the world. So a month later, you know, you're going to be doing great. So let's say you go back a month later and the doctor says, oh, so good to see you. How are you feeling? Eh, so-so. Well, what do you mean? So, I mean, I, I gave you the prescription. I gave you the stuff to do. The, the mile, the, the sugar, the, the vitamins. So tell me, how are your mile walks going? Well, see, a mile is far. It's really hard. And so instead of a mile, I just walk around my block once. <laughs> Feet hurt. Tough. Okay, okay, well, what about sugar? Well, here's the deal. I used to drink five sodas a day. I only drink one soda a day now. So I, I still have, so I sort of have been listening to you. Okay, what about vitamins? Well, okay. See, the, it's hard to remember vitamins, and so I just take them when I remember, okay? And so how do you feel? Well, I still feel kind of bad. Don't you think it would be entirely reasonable for the doctor to ask, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Sort of. I sort of trust you. And I think this is a euphemism, or not a euphemism, a, um, a, an, an allegory, what it is, something, metaphor, something, I don't know, I'm losing words here. It, it's a metaphor for how we live our life. 
one day we're going to be in the throne room of God. And he's going to say, listen, you, you attended church. You, you, you went there. You, you had the Bible. And, and it says, go make disciples of all nations. And I'm commanding you to go do that. And so, did you do that? Well, sort of. Okay, okay, well, well, you know, you have these unbelieving friends and you have these unbelieving family. And, 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 and so did you share the good news with them? And like, well, I was a nice person around. So sort of. Okay, okay, well, you have all these people that you work with and, and they don't know me and, and they needed to know me. So did you share the gospel with them? And, well, sort of. Don't you think it's entirely reasonable for Jesus to say, well, do you trust me? Do you even trust me? See, our actions reveal our true allegiance, and our true allegiance is who we put our trust in. Belief and behavior cannot be divorced. Luke 4, 6, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 6, 46 says this. Jesus is giving, about to give a parable, and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus is addressing this very thing. The separation of belief and behavior. Why do you acknowledge it with your mouth, but when it comes time to do it, you do nothing? Why do you do that? So on that day when we stand before God, will we say, hey, you trusted me and it showed up everywhere. Hey, you trusted me and, and when you stepped out in faith, people came to know me. Hey, you trusted me and when you did that, people came to know, people, lives were changed. When you trusted me, lives were changed. Or are you going to stand before God and will he say, you had all of this. You had it. But why didn't you trust me? Some of us are like, uh, man, I don't want to give an accounting of my life. And I, I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking... If, if my book were to be read before God, I, I, you know, even though I've, I, I've been a pastor and, and I am a pastor and I, I've got a great marriage and great kids and, and all that stuff, I'm like, still, I, I honestly want that written, read before God. So when you stand before God, you have to give an accounting of your life. And on that day, we have two options. The first option is, we can take our stand based on what we have done with our lives. And the second option is we can take a stand based on what Jesus has done with his life. For me, I find no hope in option one. And all of the hope is in option two. And maybe you're here today and you're like, I, I don't know if I want my book read before God. The great promise of grace, the great thing that Jesus has done for you is to say, I wrote this book too. I've got this book and it's called the book of life and, and, and I could just bring you into that and, and we could read, instead of reading your story and your sin and all that stuff, I could forgive you and we could read my story before the Father instead of reading your story. All you have to do is simply say yes to that and to trust him with your life. To let that show up in the way that you act and the way that you live. The second point, which is really, really important, is this. At the end of chapter 20, a person is not judged. Death is judged. 
And this is really, really important because how can death be judged? I mean, it's kind of non-tangible, right? Like, how do you judge death? It says Hades and the sea gave up their dead and all this stuff, and, and they, they came and stood before God. But then it, it, it says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is just sort of the, the Greek mentality of, like, under the ground. Like, when you die, you're under the ground. It's not necessarily hell. It's just under the ground. But it says that death is judged. How can something that's not a person be judged? What John is trying to say here is not necessarily literal, but again, symbolic. Because what is death? Death is the consequence of our disobedience all the way back in the garden from the very first creation. So what what John is trying to say here is in order for the new creation to come, all the consequences of sin have to be dealt with as well. It can't just be that, that... that evil goes, but all the consequences of evil have to go too. Death is the ultimate consequence for the original sin. In order for this new heaven and earth to break through, death has to go as well. Not just evil, but death. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22 says this, For since death came through a man, meaning Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, meaning Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus didn't just come to do away with evil. He came to do away with death as well. And one day, the concept of death itself will be thrown into a fiery lake. The theologian Karl Barth points out in this chapter that for Jesus, and and I love this point. I think this is a really important point. As he's standing in the throne room, there's no book of death, only a book of life. And and that it's a life that we're invited into. Death will have no place in the new creation because it'll be cast out with those who love it. So what I want you to see today is that the God of heaven and earth stands before you, and there's these two questions. One, do you trust me? Do the deeds of your life reveal what you actually believe? Do the deeds of your life reveal that you you believe in me? Well, do you trust me? And there's this other part that says, are you going to follow Jesus? Because Jesus came so that death would die. Jesus came to give us an eternal perspective that our lives don't just die with us, that they actually go on forever and ever and ever in eternity with him. And so what we do now actually has an impact on eternity. So Jesus came so that death may die. Do you have an eternal perspective? Do you have a long-term perspective when it comes to your unbelieving friends? Do you see them and think, what is their ultimate destination What are they doing with their lives? Where are they going with their lives? And the other question is, do you trust me? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. All of you either have a pen in the back of your chair or or the chair in front of you, or you have a pen on you, or you have a mind, and so you can think of this if you don't have a pen. I want to invite you to, this is a gloomy text, and it's a glorious text all at the same time. Evil and death are gone, and yet, it's still kind of gloomy because we think about, what about people who don't follow Jesus? I want to just invite you to think about this. 
one person matters. I'm not going to go ask you to go save an entire continent or country, unless it's Antarctica. Then you could just charge after Antarctica and save a continent. I'm not going to go ask you to plant churches somewhere or anything like that yet. yet. What I'm going to ask you is to think about one. Think about one person that doesn't know Jesus. Think about one person that on that day when the book of life is read, they're arrogant enough to say, well, let me show you chapter 5 of my life, God. I gave five bucks to the Salvation Army. Bam, get me in here. I mean, think about that one person. I'm going to ask you to make that person a matter of prayer in your life. A matter of every day. Maybe you, you, you put their picture up next to your kids on the dashboard of your car. I don't know. I don't have a picture of my kids on the dashboard of my car. It's more of a movie thing, I think. They just get in the way of the speedometer. Anyways, put that person in front of you and commit that person, commit to pray for that person, to ask the Lord to speak into that person's life and to give you opportunities to speak in their life. And, and, and so that on the day of judgment, on the day that they're standing before God, that they, they would have trusted in Jesus enough to, to say, I, I don't want my book read. I want your book read. As I want to follow you, and hopefully, obviously, that decision is made before they die. So who's that one person? I want to invite you to write that name down. I want to invite you to, I want to ask you that every single day that that person be made a matter of prayer. And maybe they don't end up coming here. Maybe they end up going to a different church. But the point is that they know Jesus. That's the point. So I want to invite the band to come, and we're going to close in a prayer here, I just want to invite anybody who's here today. Maybe there's somebody here who, when we ask that question, do you trust me? If Jesus is asking that question to you right now, may, maybe it's like, ah, yeah-ish, sort of. You're that guy who went to the doctor, and the doctor said, I want you to do all this stuff, and you're like, yeah, that was hard. Maybe you're that person. I want to invite you to surrender to Jesus and, and simply say, Lord, I want your book to write over my book. My book stinks. No, this is the Bible. This is great. But my book is junk. There's just junk written all through my book. And God, I need your blood to write over my book because my book is awful. Maybe you're here today and, and you simply want to say that prayer to Jesus. There's no magical words that we could say to Jesus. It's simply, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want you to forgive me. I want to live life with you. So let's pray. Jesus, some of us have said that we trust you, but we live like we don't. God, as we leave here today, as we even right now contemplate this, Lord, would people put their faith in you right now? Maybe the words that you simply need to say is, I trust you with my life. I surrender to you. Would you forgive me of the stuff that I have done? Would you forgive the thoughts that I've had? Would you break the power of sin in my life? And would you help me to start living my life like you want? in a way that shows that I trust you. 
We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.